You are listening to the Anti-Racist Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Alyssa Hall, anti-racism consultant and leadership coach. If you are a mission-based entrepreneur or leader, then you are in the right place. In this podcast, we're going to be covering what anti-racist leadership actually is, how to implement that in your business, and all of the things that you need to know to finally shift out of the learning and listening cycle. I hope you're ready to take some notes. Let's hop into today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, this episode today, we're going to be talking about me, allowing you to get to know me. Fun fact, this is actually my second time recording this episode. To be honest, when I listen to other people's podcasts, I truly do not even care about this episode. I always, always, always skip the intro type of episode. So when I recorded this episode the first time, I feel like some of that energy was just in there. I really didn't want to record it at all y'all and I feel like it showed in the product um because the episode came out trash so now here we are recording it for the second time but what I did this time is I went to my Instagram stories I'm at AR leadership if you're not following me already and I asked what would y'all like to know about me so this episode is really more of a QA and a because I felt like it'd be a little bit more fun to do it that way than to me re-record the thing that I was bored by the first time so Let's jump in because y'all actually asked questions. I was so pleasantly surprised. I thought I was going to have to come on here and it'd be really embarrassing and awkward when I had no questions, so I just had to record a normal episode. But y'all actually came out. Y'all actually asked questions. So I just want to say thank you to those of you that asked questions. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. You are the reason why we have this episode here today. All right, so let's get started because it was a lot of questions. So the first one is... Um, tell us about your career journey and how did you get started in this work? My career journey is pretty non-traditional, so I'll try to start where it makes sense. Before I was doing DEI work, I was actually just working in the restaurant industry for about seven or eight years, um, and I was just there because I just needed to pay my bills, honestly. Um, I moved out of my mom's house when I was 20, so I just needed to you know, support myself in any way that I could. And so that's why I was in the industry for that long. But it was really just like a background thing um, as I pursued my goals, as I like tried to finish school. And when I was in school for at the very beginning, at least, was to be a doctor. I had wanted to be a doctor since I was 12. I shifted back and forth. What I really wanted to do was surgery, but my hands, they're not set up like that. So I would uh, flip back and forth between like, uh, pediatrician, ER pediatrician, all of these different things. Um, but at the core of it, I badly wanted to be a doctor. And the goal of me wanting to be a doctor is kind of where this DEI journey for me really started. Um, I remember visiting my abuela in the hospital. This was way, way before she passed. Um, she was just there for whatever reason. And we um, lived in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. So the hospital, like the people who went to the hospital were also predominantly Hispanic, predominantly immigrants, so they had a limited knowledge of English, um, but the people who worked at the hospital were not. They were clearly fluent in English, and in fact, it was the opposite. They pretty much barely knew any Spanish, and so I would see the way like the doctors and the nurses, ma mainly the nurses, would treat abuela compared to whatever you know, roommate that she had in the hospital room. Abuela has a had a working knowledge of English. 
Um, I'm clearly fluent. My mom, who is also an immigrant, but she's also fluent. And so we would be treated in, I guess, the way that you would hope to be treated in a hospital compared to the person next to us who didn't speak any English at all. The nurses would like lose their temper. They'd be a little bit more short with them. And I remember noticing that. And from those experience, I told myself, okay, when I become a doctor, I am going to be the most fluent doctor. Like I'm going to really sharpen up my Spanish. I'm already fluent, but I don't really feel confident in it. And I'm going to sharpen up my Spanish so that I can be the advocate for those patients. And for me, that was me really understanding the the disparities in the healthcare system, but more so how that's actually affecting patients. They are there because they are not, they're not happy to be there. They don't want to be there. But then to also have to deal with shitty treatment, not really understand what's going on, it's a lot. And I carried that all the way through to college where my first major in college was Spanish translation and interpretation. And it was solely so I can fulfill that purpose. And that major was boring. I hated it, (laughs) but I really wanted to push through with it because I just kept thinking about those patients in the hospital and how I wanted to be able to advocate for them so that when I was on the floor, they knew that they were being taken care of, right? Um... I ended up not completing that, but I wanted to share that story of just like, this is what it looks like for me when I think of making an impact. This is very, very much ingrained in just who I am as a person. So fast forward, I had my daughter and by the time she was two, I realized that I didn't want to be a doctor anymore. I didn't want to go through residency where you're gone for 10 plus hours out of the day where you have overnights where you have doubles like I did not want to do that and end up missing so much of my daughter's life if she was two then I was like I'm doing the math and like by the time I get to that point she'd be like six seven eight I don't want to miss those years I'd finally begun to acknowledge my love for psychology, and at the time I was working at a psychiatrist's office to just get a feel of what it would be like. Um, That office was toxic as fuck, and that's where I also had the come to Jesus moment of like, okay, I'm not going to be a psychiatrist, I'm going to go one rung down, I'm going to be a therapist, but I cannot continue working in these shitty jobs until I get to be a therapist. So that's when I went one rung down again and decided to get a coaching certification. I got my coaching certification in IPEC and I decided that when I finished, I was going to start a business doing career transition coaching because I wanted to help people shift into the career of their dreams, especially if that involved taking a leap and doing something unconventional like I felt I had when I decided to pursue coaching, even though I had no finances to do so and Two days after I started my certification program, I became a single mom. So I wanted to help people make those difficult transitions, even if it was a risk, but to do so for their happiness, knowing that something better would be on the other side. So I did that, got my first client. It really wasn't as fun as I thought it was going to be, um, but I really did enjoy listening to her talk about mom life and those struggles. So then I was like, you know what? let me shift into mom coaching. So I did that for a year. I felt super passionate about that. I really wanted to get moms to break out of the mom guilt and be their full selves before they had children. Um, And then June 2020 happened. George Floyd was murdered by the police and the online space, especially in the entrepreneurship space, just went into 
shambles, just complete fucking shambles of people not knowing what to respond, what to do. Do we go back to business as usual? This is ridiculous. What do you mean this has been going on for years? How do I respond? What do I do? Like it was just insane. When I describe it to people, I describe it as like, there's a scene in Mean Girls where Regina George is like standing at the top of some type of staircase inside of her school. And the entire population of the school is just running around, screaming, throwing papers. And she's just standing there in the middle of it. She's standing there in the middle of it because she caused all that havoc. But I felt like Regina George in that moment in the sense of I'm not causing any havoc. But I'm just standing there watching everyone run in circles, screaming, throwing papers. And I'm just like, are y'all okay? Like, for real, for real, are y'all okay? And I wanted to tell y'all the story about, like, when my abuela was in the hospital. Because for me, I thought everyone thought like that. We're existing in our life. We see a problem. We try to put ourselves in the gap of that problem to try to, you know, bridge it together. And we're able to see the world in that way. And what June 2020 showed me is that, no, Alyssa, not everyone is looking at the world in that way. And so what I started doing was just going on Facebook Live all the time. I put a complete pause on my mom coaching because at that point, it did not feel important to me. I like I literally did not care (laughs) anymore about it. Um, I just put it on pause and was just like, let me just talk to these people. Let me just help them out. I was coming on live every single day. I was um, posting and reposting things every single day to the point where um, my coach at the time and my therapist at the time, on the same week, they were like, why don't you just make this your niche? And I was like, no, you don't understand. I can't just make this my niche. Like, I finally finished my freebie for my mom coaching niche are you are you serious right now like you know how long that took me like y'all I was just not about to have it but I was like okay fine I'll just I'll just test it out then and I made a quick little sales page on like lead pages or some shit and was like hey this is a new offer that I'm gonna be doing and I started doing this work and I've never looked back but I feel so incredibly passionate for this work and so grateful to have found something that I feel like I can put my heart and my soul in and it's making such a huge impact because that at the end of the day is what's so important to me and has always been important for me. You know, um, that actually leads to the next question that someone asked, which was, um, if I weren't doing this work, what would I be doing? And I would be a therapist. If I weren't doing this work, I wanted to be a therapist specifically for um, teenagers. I wanted to get a marriage and family therapist degree and I wanted to support them because those teenage years are such an important time to really like get support and that's also the time where a lot of people don't get support because of how stigmatized it is maybe their parents don't really understand and there's just so many other things that are happening that make it so that teens don't ask for help and so what I also wanted to do was speak on stages Um, I wanted to speak in schools and host talks about the importance of mental health for teens, but mainly for their parents. I wanted them to be able to see the warning signs. I wanted them to have um, really fulfilling conversations with their teens to get them to get the support that they wanted. Um, And I really wanted to have that sort of speaking on stages thing. I wanted that to be um, like my main source of income, and I wanted to take private clients for my... um, for my therapy practice so then I could fill like 
I don't know, three to five slots um, every week with uh, teens and families that are either on Medicaid or just don't have any insurance at all. And it would just be free. And again, like, (laughs) I'm telling you all this because I'm being mission focused is just a part of my DNA, y'all. Like, this is not something that I have to think about. This is just the way that my brain works. And that's why, again, going back to June 2020, I'm just like, oh, all of y'all aren't doing this. And I think that really leads in perfectly to, to the next question that someone asked me, which is, what keeps me going? What keeps me going is the vision. The vision of what happens when this individual that I'm speaking to does this work, when this company that I'm working with does this work. What is the impact? What is the ripple effect? What happens as a result of that? That is what constantly keeps me going. It's also my current clients. My clients keep me going every single day because I'm able to work with them and see how much they care and really give my all and see how the change happens literally from one week to the next. Not even just the longer term vision, just the internal changes on that one call. That's what keeps me going. Got a bit emotional there. Like, for real, for real, y'all. I had to edit out like seven minutes. But let's get to the next question. Who is your favorite client that you've worked with? So I don't necessarily have a favorite client per se. Um, (laughs) I feel like I'm lying, but it doesn't matter. I'm like the parent where it's like, who's your favorite child? All of my children are my favorite children. (laughs) That's that's the answer you're going to get from me right now. But instead, what I will answer is what is my favorite type of client? Because I sure as hell have a type. Um, So first, one that is self-aware. I am very conflict adverse. And so I don't want to be arguing with people about what they believe about themselves with it being completely wrong. (laughs) I want you to be able to, as a result of coaching, take a deeper look at yourself and understand that what you're looking at is truth, even though it's hard. I don't want to have to sit there and tell you about yourself every single week and you argue back to me about how that's not true or give me excuses or do all these other things. I don't. I need you to be self-aware. That is the that's like my my favorite. That's my only actually. I can't work with people who are not self-aware. And real quick before I go to the next one, let me just be clear. When I say like I'm telling someone about themselves, I'm not doing it in the way that I think you'd expect me to. It comes from a coaching space, from a very exploratory, curious type of space, right? Where it's like, hey, I'm noticing that you mentioned that your values are this, and what I'm seeing is this, and have that person be willing to have a conversation about that. Or like when I give someone a suggestion, and then they don't do the suggestion, and they're upset by whatever result that they're getting, like, hey, you know... You didn't do the homework and that homework is what's going to set you up to be able to now do X, Y, and Z, right? I can't have it be that I have to tell you every week that you didn't do the homework. I want you to tell me that you didn't do the homework. (laughs) These are all off the top random examples, but I just need y'all to understand. I'm not like calling people out in the middle of a coaching session. I just want people to meet me where I'm at when I am showing them the mirror of themselves. 
Next is someone who is proactive. Oh my gosh, y'all. I am I don't want to I don't want to put out fires. Mm-mm. Because here here's the problem, right? When you when I get called in to to do something because something happened. Usually there is a sense of urgency that is completely unrealistic. Usually there is a hope for a solution that is also completely unrealistic. Hey, something happened here and we need you to give this racist person three sessions. Thank you. Are you fucking kidding me right now? Three sessions? Just so y'all can say, hey, so-and-so consulted with an anti-racism consultant? Get out my face with that shit. I'm not. I am not. Oh, hey, an issue happened in our company. We now need a whole company-wide thing. Can you just give one training? Goodbye. Absolutely not. Because here's the thing. When an issue happens... These issues don't just sporadically fall out of the sky. These issues come from something and they typically show off cracks and holes within your business foundation or within your leadership and one little thing is not going to solve that. So that's that's one reason. Number two, there again with, with here's where the urgency piece comes in. It's like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll take you up on your offer, we'll do your whole program, but instead of six months, I want to make sure that we're showing results in like a week or two so that the people who were harmed feel happy. That's not how this works. Could y'all imagine having your toxic ex go to therapy and after one session trying to show you how much they've changed? What has changed? Nothing has changed, so why? Do we feel like slapping on a diversity statement, slapping on all of these little different band-aids will actually change something when it has to be deep internal change, both for the business as well as those who perpetrated the harm, as well as for those who are in positions of leadership because they create the business culture. That's why I love working with people who are proactive because when you're proactive, you're able to just trust the process, do the things in the proper order that they need to be done. Next episode, we are going to talk about what is DEIAR, what is the proper order that things need to be done in. But the only way that you can do that without this sense of urgency is if you're proactive before something happens. And then by the time something happens, because it will, because we're human and we make mistakes, We have the tools, we have the support, and there's no sense of urgency of like, oh shit, I need to turn my business upside down in two days. The third one is just someone who's mission-driven. It's really exhausting and disappointing being in the online entrepreneurship space, especially in the coaching industry, where it feels like although we are mission-driven in what we say, right? Oh, I do this work for women because I want to help them smash the patriarchy and I want to help them do X, Y, and Z. But in reality, we're actually financially driven. And it's okay to want money. I want money. Right When I first started this work, it was so that I could have a sustainable life for myself and my daughter. And as I've grown and made more money, now I have even bigger missions for what I want to do with this money. But also, I want to live my luxury black girl life. The end. I want to go on vacation multiple times a year. I want to have the purses that I want. I want to live in the nice luxury apartment building. That is fine, but every single decision that I make is not from the basis of 
is this just going to make me more money? And if not, then I'm not doing it right now. That's the difference between someone who's finance-driven and mission-driven. So a mission-driven entrepreneur has no problem with making sure that their team is being better supported, with making sure that they have the knowledge to support their clients even better. They have no problem with spending that money without having to ask on the other end, but will this make me more money in the end? When I got my coaching certification, I was not asking, okay, but how much money can I make if I do have it and how much money can I make if I don't? It did not matter to me because what was important to me was being the best coach I could possibly be. I did not care what that did. I'm doing so much ranting in this episode and I am just praying I will be able to keep this episode. I don't want to re-record this. (laughs) So if this episode comes out trash, I'm sorry. I've already done this twice. I'm over it. (laughs) Every other episode will be great, I promise. Okay, the next question is, what's something I wish every entrepreneur would know? I feel like I have a lot of things, but for sake of time, one of them I'm actually going to create a whole separate episode. But to answer that question, I'm just going to use what I just mentioned earlier about the difference between being actually mission-driven and being finance-driven and just allowing y'all to, again, be self-aware and be realistic with yourself about the decisions that you've made in your business and maybe the things that you've decided not to do in your business and where that decision came from. And also another thing I'm going to put into another episode is like the different types of quote unquote scarcity mentality. We're going to have a whole episode about that. So even if you're thinking about the finance driven and there's a bit of scarcity and not in a, not in a negative way, please don't take this in a negative way. Take this in a realistic way. Um, a bit of scarcity underneath that. We're going to talk about that in a later episode, but that's the big thing I want entrepreneurs to know. If you're going to be mission-driven, be fully mission-driven and be ready to challenge yourself. If you're going to be finance-driven, that's totally okay, but don't keep kidding yourself and saying that you're something else when you're not because it's just going to create so much anxiety and discomfort within yourself. All right, y'all, there's two more questions. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Um, So the second to last question is, why am I different from others in the DEI space? So for one, it's my coaching background. As I told y'all in my fucking life story, um, I was a coach first. What having the coach approach to this work does is that it, it creates a place for conversation and actual individual change. I can tell y'all upside down, left and right, all the things that you need to do after taking a look at your business, obviously. But it's not going to change unless it's something that you actually agree with. Having a coach approach to a conversation like that, it allows us to get deeper. What are your thoughts about that? What's coming up for you about that? What are some beliefs that are coming against what I just said? And then we get to dive deeper into that. And then we say, oh, let's say we're having a conversation about professionalism. And it's like, well, you know, for me, professional is when someone comes up to me in a suit every single day and says, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, what what fucking ever, y'all, I don't know. And then I go, okay, let's unpack that. Let's see where that came from. And let's see how, what you're actually trying to draw from that. What I'm understanding from the yes, ma'am, no, ma'am is respect. What are other ways that we can qualify respect that does not involve someone using language that actually doesn't feel good for them? When it comes to the suit, what I'm hearing is that you want someone to be presentable. 
what is another way that we can qualify presentable that does not require someone dressing in a way that may not feel comfortable to them? Oh, okay, yeah, let's do that and that and third. And then what I will also do is talk to them about why it's important for someone to feel comfortable coming to work. So that way they can show up better, they can produce better. All of these different things comes from the coach approach. And that was just like a random off the top of my head example. But having those coaching conversations also, what that allows me to do is to speak about this human to human. There is so much intimidation in this work that it's important that people understand that they don't have to do anything they don't feel comfortable with. But understand that you may grow and what feels uncomfortable for you today may not feel uncomfortable for you tomorrow. I also think since I'm so like mission driven, um, I connect every single damn thing to your mission and I will not let you forget that. I even do like values assessments. We do that incredibly differently. I also feel like I do my work with a more humanistic approach. So I do things in a way that I feel allow us to just be ourselves and be human and create that sense of comfort and safety so that you can get the support that you actually need instead of just yesing me to death because you feel like this is what you need to do. Those are the things that came up for me when I'm thinking about what makes me different. All right. Last thing, then I'm going to let y'all go and have the rest of your day. Um, But the last thing that someone asked me, well, a few people asked me, was like, what are my hobbies? What are my likes, my dislikes? What are things that you would never know about me if I don't say it right now? (laughs) I actually kind of love that um, because I've always tried to hide away a lot of parts of the things that I enjoy to do because I've typically been the youngest in the room and I never wanted to be seen as immature. Um, But I've really broken away from a lot of that over the last couple of years. So let's get into it. Real like rapid fire like. So I've been a sneakerhead since I was in high school. I have been a gamer since I was about like six or seven. My very first gaming console. I got it for Christmas when I was seven. It was the PlayStation 1. And I was low-key upset because I didn't know what the hell a PlayStation 1 was. And I badly wanted a Nintendo 64. Um, But that was the best, best, best thing that my dad could have ever given me. Um, What else? I am an avid, avid reader. A little bit after my daughter was born, I had a YouTube channel and it was all about books. I would do book reviews. I would do book hauls. I'm trying to remember one of the videos that I had, it was Adaptation Battle. Um, and one of the ones that I did was A Walk to Remember. So I read the book, A Walk to Remember, then I watched the movie and I did this episode, like breaking down each one and saying which one was better. Spoiler alert, I ended up I used to love A Walk to Remember, and after doing that and dissecting it, I fucking hated it. Anyway, so yeah, I used to have a, um, a booktube channel. Um, what else? What else? My most favorite animated show of all time is BoJack Horseman. If you are also a BoJack Horseman fan, please personally reach out to me, okay? That show is fucking amazing, and I just want to gush about it all day, every day with people. Um, my favorite live-action show forever and for always will be the golden girls i started watching that with my mom when i was like 10 (laughs) um and my favorite movie is greece you know it's it's (laughs) it is what it is all right i'm not gonna hear any grease slander i know it's not the best but i love it (laughs) 
My most favorite Broadway performance is, uh, well, second is Phantom of the Opera. Third is, actually, no, Phantom of the Opera and Lion King are, are tied at number two. But number one is one that I will bet you any amount of money that you haven't seen. And if you have seen, again, please personally reach out to me. Um, so right before the pandemic, West Side Story was remade or redone on Broadway. And by luck, <laughs> literal luck, I was able to see it for free. And that version of West Side Story was the best Broadway play I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. Then the pandemic happened and then they never brought it back. And it was only on Broadway for I think like four to six weeks. That was it. And I still like get very emotionally upset about the fact that it is literally gone and I will never be able to see it again. Um, But Phantom and The Lion King are still there. So that's that on that. But yeah, y'all, that was my episode about me. Now that I've got this dreaded episode out of the way, you can actually hear good fucking content. I'm so excited. Are you excited? I'm very excited. The next episode is already out, episode three, and that is the official, for me, the official first episode of this podcast. Please let me know what y'all think of it, rate and review, and post it on your social media, and always tag me at AR Leadership, and let me know what you think, and if there's anything else you'd love to hear me talk about. All right, I will talk to you later. Bye!